Welcome to Clippings, the official podcast of the Council for Nail Disorders, where Drs. April Schachtel and Catherine Stiff take a closer look at articles and clippings published on all things nail disease. Listeners can suggest articles for this podcast or topics of discussion by sending an email to kristen.cnd at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Hello, and welcome to episode 20 of the Clippings Podcast, where we review nail papers and present them to you. I'm April Schachtel, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Catherine Stiff. Hello, listeners. My article today is titled, Risk of Fetal Malformation, Spontaneous Abortion, and Adverse Pregnancy Outcomes After Gestational Terbinafine Exposure, a Systematic Review. The authors are Philip Fossleitner, Alex Farr, and Julia Deinsberger, and it was published online in August 2022 in the Journal of Dermatological Treatment. The background to this article is, of course, that fungal skin and nail infections are common, and one of the most commonly prescribed treatments for those infections is terbinafine, both topical and oral. Terbinafine and the related compound naftaphine are synthetic allylamines that are fungicidal and interfere with fungal membrane function and cell wall synthesis, by inhibiting squalene epoxidase. Terbinafine is generally well-tolerated with few adverse effects and drug interactions and is generally very cost-effective with good compliance too. It's available both topically and orally, and when it's applied topically, less than 5% of the applied dose is thought to be absorbed systemically. There's insufficient data regarding the embryotoxicity and adverse pregnancy outcomes, so treatment with terbinafine is generally not recommended during pregnancy or breastfeeding. No systematic review on congenital malformations or adverse pregnancy outcomes due to gestational terbinafine exposure had been previously published, so these authors set out to fill that gap. They performed a systematic review searching databases for studies investigating congenital malformations, spontaneous abortions, and other adverse pregnancy outcomes from inception until March 2022. The studies had to include an unexposed control arm. Ultimately, four cohort and case control studies were included, which overall looked at 1.6 million pregnancies and 6,700 exposures to terbinafine. I will go through the results one by one with respect to each outcome that they checked. The first outcome was risk of congenital malformations. None of the studies found an increased risk of congenital malformations after gestational exposure to terbinafine. Next was the risk of spontaneous abortion after gestational terbinafine exposure before 22 weeks of gestation. A study by Anderson et al. found that 10.4% of women with systemic terbinafine exposure during pregnancy experienced a spontaneous abortion versus 10.3% of unexposed controls. Overall, there was no difference between the groups exposed to oral or topical terbinafine and those that were not. The next outcome measure was the risk of preterm birth and stillbirth. There was no significant increase in preterm birth after topical or systemic terbinafine used during pregnancy, and there was also no increased risk in stillbirth. For a sense of the numbers, one study showed that preterm birth occurred in 6.2% of those exposed topically or systemically versus 57 to 6.6% of those who were unexposed. Stillbirth, again, for the numbers, occurred in 0.3% of those exposed topically, 
0.4% of those exposed systemically and 0.3% of those unexposed. The next outcome measure was low birth weight, which was seen in 3.3% of systemically exposed versus 4.9% of exposed patients. So overall, no significant increase in being small for gestational age after either topical or systemic terbinafine exposure. Overall, this systematic review found no increase in the risk of congenital malformations, spontaneous abortion, preterm birth, small for gestational age, low birth weight, or stillbirth after gestational terbinafine exposure in any of the assessed reports. No evidence was found regarding naftaphine in pregnancy at all. In the past, insufficient data regarding the embryo toxicity and adverse pregnancy outcomes led to a general recommendation that terbinafine should not be used in pregnancy or breastfeeding. However, the animal study data has not revealed any evidence of fetal risk during pregnancy. So based on this systematic review of the available evidence, systemic and oral terbinafine use during pregnancy appears to be safe. Looking at the other available options for fungal infections, topical easels are recommended as first-line treatment during pregnancy, and they are thought to be safe, but oral azole safety in pregnancy is contra- controversial. Um, recent meta-analysis has suggested that a risk of, that there is a risk of heart and limb malformations and spontaneous abortion with oral fluconazole. Uh, oral itraconazole during pregnancy has been associated with eye defects, and griseofulvin has been shown to have teratogenic effects in animals, although human data is limited. So overall, looking at those available alternatives, this makes terbenafine a pretty appealing alternative option for treatment of the appropriate fungal infections during pregnancy. I think a risk-benefit discussion with the patient is appropriate, and this systematic review can be used to support that discussion. Yes, I agree. I'm, I'm glad this article was published. I think we undertreat many dermatologic conditions in pregnancy to avoid the potential risks of the fetus, but it's very difficult to investigate that. No, Not many providers are willing to say like, oh, hey, let's just try this medication while you're pregnant to see if it'll harm your child. So it's nice to have a little bit of evidence to back up that it's probably safe to, to give terbinafine. I agree. This is reassuring to have data about almost 7,000 terbinafine exposures. All right, Catherine, tell us what you read about. I chose a review article entitled Leukonychia, What Can White Nails Tell Us? by Drs. Urizzo, Sturace, and Pash, published in the American Journal of Clinical Dermatology in February 2022. Leukonychia is a common finding and is not typically associated with underlying disorders, but can rarely indicate systemic or congenital conditions. This thorough review article discusses the morphological and anatomical features of leukonychia and creates an algorithm to assist clinicians in efficiently approaching leukonychia. So leukonychia was first classified into morphological presentations, total striate, punctate, and leukonychia partialis for nails that were incompletely white. It has also been divided anatomically. Those subtypes include true leukonychia, which is due to intrinsic matrix and nail plate abnormalities, 
apparent leukonychia, which occurs when the pathology involves the nail bed, and pseudoleukonychia, which describes whiteness of the superficial nail plate. To differentiate between the anatomic subtypes, you can apply pressure to the nail plate. The white color does not fade with pressure in true leukonychia or pseudoleukonychia, but will fade with pressure in cases of apparent leukonychia. And this is because pressure leads to a temporary reduction of nail bed edema. Other ways to differentiate them, the white color moves distally with nail plate growth in pseudoleukonychia and true leukonychia, but stays at the same location with apparent leukonychia. With true leukonychia, the abnormal keratinization in perikeratosis causes a white discoloration because the nail plate reflects visible light, thus preventing visualization of the nail bed. And once this trigger stops, the white color will grow out distally. While the white color in apparent leukonychia is a result of blood vessel compression by the nail bed, once the inciting factor has resolved, the resolution actually starts distally and moves proximally. And this is because of the capillary filling of the nail bed runs from distal to proximal. In pseudoleukonychia, the transparency of the normal nail plate is disrupted by an external factor that leads to detachment of the nail plate onychocytes and scaling of the upper nail plate. And this can be easily differentiated from true or apparent leukonychia by scraping the scale from the affected plate. They then discuss various causes of the presentations with leukonychia. So punctate true leukonychia is the most common presentation and is typically due to trauma. And pseudoleukonychia can also present this way and due to superficial onychomycosis or nail fr fragility due to nail cosmetics. Transverse true leukonychia can be due to mesline, lines, which are one to two millimeter white bands of um, running parallel to the lunula. And these lines were initially described after arsenic ingestion, but can also be a retrospective indicator of a systemic insult or trauma. Merkey's lines are an example of apparent transverse leukonychia, which means they fade with pressure. They are paired pale narrow bands parallel to the lunula that typically affect all 20 nails, and they can indicate underlying hypoalbuminemia, kidney disease, rheumatoid arthritis, and have also been described after treatment with retinoids or cytotoxic medications. They resolve with normalization of the nail bed, such as correcting albumin levels. Longitudinal true leukonychia is caused by alterations of the nail matrix. Underlying causes include derriers, genoderms, nail matrix lichen planus, or onychomatricomas. And apparent longitudinal leukonychia can also be caused by nail tumors, such as subungual squamous cell carcinoma or onychopapillomas. And the authors also discuss the congenital etiologies of partial or total true leukonychia. We more commonly see the acquired form, which can be associated with a variety of underlying disorders, medications, or trauma. Lindsay's nails, or half-and-half half nails, are an example of apparent partial leukonychia. These patients often have underlying renal disease and present with sharply demarcated red, pink, or brown discoloration of 20 to 60% of the distal nail bed 
with a ground glass white proximal portion. In contrast with Terry's nails, most of the nail is white and the reddish brown distal portion is less than 20% of the total nail length. And these nails are strongly associated with cirrhosis, but can also be seen with underlying systemic conditions. So in summary, leukonychia can have a variety of potential etiologies. The authors created a helpful algorithm combining both the anatomical and morphological classifications to assist clinicians in identifying the most likely etiology. Dermoscopy can be a useful tool to assist in the diagnosis and treatment, and treatment is aimed at addressing the underlying cause. Awesome. I'm going to print out this algorithm and keep it on the wall to share with my residents. Yes, it is. It's a good one. All right, Catherine, thank you for joining me on this episode of Clippings. I want to thank our listeners for their attention and to ask our listeners to please share this podcast with your colleagues and trainees. Let us know how we are doing and which articles you would like us to review on the show by contacting kristen.cnd at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter at Nail Disorders.